You're listening to Seattle Grove Podcast. You are listening to Seattle Grove Podcast. You are listening to Seattle Grove Podcast. Available free on iTunes. I'm Jeff Shulman. And as some of the talented voices of Seattle just announced, you are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast. I'm excited to be back for a very special fourth season in which we will explore the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. As we embark on yet another season of Seattle Growth Podcast, I'd like to thank everyone who has been a part of this journey that helps Seattle Growth Podcast grow from just an idea to what is now a well-known source for perspective on the transformation underway. From the outstanding guests who have lent their voices to the project, to the radio, TV, print, and new media outlets who have acknowledged the work, and to you, the many listeners whose enthusiasm energizes me to continue seeking the stories of people shaping our city. Looking back to the very first episode of Seattle Growth Podcast, Seattle City Councilmember Rob Johnson spoke of the unique time we find ourselves in. I believe at the city we're at this incredible inflection point. This inflection point comes as the local economy and population are booming. Parker Ferguson, founding partner at Flynn Ferguson Corporate Real Estate, gave further perspective on the growth happening here. We used to have boom times and a company uh, would come in and they might hire 20 people or 40 people or 50 people and now Facebook rolls into town and they're hiring 3,000 people and... Um, Tableau expands and they're hiring thousands of people and Amazon thousands and thousands of people. So there's certainly the the scale is much larger and uh, the velocity is things are just happening a lot faster. I've since explored many opportunities and challenges associated with this explosive growth. Seattle Growth Podcast has brought unique perspectives on a range of issues, such as housing, transportation, sports, culture, and the physical transformation of our city. Now, Seattle Growth Podcast brings its spotlight to the music scene. The rapid rise of Seattle's tech industry has had the strongest impact on growth in this city, and some tech workers, such as Daryl Ducharme, even credit Seattle's legendary music scene for spurring such innovation. And I really am of the belief that it's because of the artists and entertainers we have here in Seattle. All that creative energy makes for smart people uh, who are coming up with creative solutions because we think outside the box. We think creatively. We, We have this background. In this season of Seattle Growth Podcast, established and emerging artists, music lovers, and music industry leaders will share their diverse perspectives on the past, present, and future of the Seattle music scene. You'll hear a collection of voices who share personal stories and experiences in our city. Today's episode brings you back to the 1990s, an almost universally recognized era of Seattle sound. It was a time when America's ears were tuned in to our city. Pete Nordstrom, co-president of the well-known retailer Nordstrom and bassist for the band Stag, described what Seattle's rise to prominence meant to him. To a guy like me, it didn't seem realistic that you'd be able to actually play your own songs and record records and have them played and do all that. I just That wasn't really what it was like up until really the, the late 80s, 80s around here. And even at that time, the stuff that was really the beginning of grunge was a very underground thing. It wasn't a very popular thing. It was, you know, 
I was aware of it, but it was just not really in, in my orbit. So my growing up playing music, I played in cover bands. Um, but it, one of the great things that happened with that whole kind of grunge explosion, I think it just gave everybody the opportunity to say, well, I mean, heck, maybe I could do this too. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe we can do our own songs. And uh, it, was, it was motivating and encouraging. Most of the guys that started this stuff, they're all about my age. I, I knew some of them. And uh, I don't know, it was just kind of cool to track it and feel like, you know, I, I, I guess a sense of pride for what was happening in our community that we're part of something that was really a, a big movement. Whereas Seattle had produced many notable musical artists in prior years, the sounds from the 1990s were distinctly recognized across the globe as emanating from this city. With Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Presidents of the United States of America, Alice in Chains, the Foo Fighters, and many more, Seattle was a powerful force in influencing pop culture and music. The industry and fans took notice. For example, Three of the five nominees for Best Alternative Music Performance at the 38th Annual Grammys in 1996 hailed from Seattle. And today's episode features one of these nominees, the drummer for the Presidents of the United States of America, Jason Finn. Being a drummer that had my own kit immediately made me sort of a commodity in the post-high school world. What was it like to be a Seattle musician in this era where one could be catapulted from playing Seattle's romper room to selling millions of records around the world. What was happening in Seattle that enabled local bands to take that national leap? You'll hear Jason Finn's perspective on these questions and more. You'll also hear the fan perspective from Daryl Ducharme, a music lover who worked at Guitar Center during the decade. So it really was just just part of my life, you know, getting to know these different people, hang out, listen to all types of music. The interviews will paint a vivid picture of a unique moment in Seattle's history that will also give insight into our future. Now, join me as I sit down with Jason Finn, part of a platinum-selling, Grammy-nominated band. I am here with Jason Finn, drummer for the twice Grammy-nominated band, Presidents of the United States of America. Jason, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Uh, we like to say two-time Grammy losers because it, <laughs> it rolls off the tongue a little quicker. <laughs> a little yeah. quicker. Yeah. Um, so you've lived a dream as a uh, triple platinum recording artist. You've lived a dream that so many music fans have. Uh, so why don't we start by telling me what's it like being part of a world-known band? Oh boy, um, that's um, that's a great question. As as it as it recedes further into the past, uh, it gets more challenging to remember what it actually felt like. But um, uh, it was a it was a great run, and uh, you know the phrase "being in the right place at the right time." This is uh, we felt like we were sort of triple recipients of that. Like we we were sort of in in. Obviously, the right city, definitely the right year, and happened to be kind of uh, amongst uh, maybe the right sort of uh, 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 group of beer drinking buddies, and um, and we're also pretty good, of course. Uh, uh, <laughs> good luck, really, is, is is how I would sum it up. And so, what was your favorite part about the experience yeah. of a meteoric rise, so to speak? Right. Well, the meteoric rise was was probably not the best part of it uh um in the sense that you know things happen so quickly there's there's uh neither us nor the our you know our audience were able to sort of contextualize things it all happened literally overnight and and um 
you know, maybe maybe that made things rough on the way back uh, the, as we tried to sort of quiet things down later also. But um, uh, it was exciting to be sort of breaking everywhere all at once. Uh, it led to a lot of really weird travel um, uh, routing. A lot of like, well, you've got to be on the West Coast and also Germany and also Japan this week because, you know, because of reacting to, to, to various uh, market forces or, or whatever. There was a lot of extra trips to Germany, I'll recall, and that was a country we never did as well in. And uh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to speculate as to why, but boy, we, we, we spent a lot of time working on Germany. <laughs> it just never whereas the Australians they just fell into line immediately I don't know uh, if it says something about us or Australians and Germans but uh, 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 back and forth okay so that's what yeah. you remember is the, the Germans yeah right the, I shouldn't say it's not me it was my bandmates Dave and Chris used to they, they were way more into like oh god not Germany again and it's not a slam on the great German people of course but maybe time was short and everybody was sleep deprived and deprived and maybe the uh the food wasn't the best or something so 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 you were loved in australia spending lots of time in germany known all around the united states before all that walk me through where you lived in seattle and how you were able to make ends meet i will say that that was a that was a very sort of more organically fun year for for me and for for us as a band uh, um i lived in a a sort of grunge rocker group house down on East Lake, down right, right, uh, right off of East Lake, right by the, where the East Lake Zoo is, not too far from the bridge there, and was working at the Comet Tavern, which was at the time one of very few uh, sort of young people uh, watering holes on Capitol Hill. Um, uh, so that was a good place to be, and uh, uh, they were also very flexible with. Uh, with scheduling, so my my pre president's bands could go on tour, and I could just like get my Thursday nights covered and and go away as as, as much as uh, uh, I needed to. So that was nice. Um, so um, I was not, I was not really that stretched uh, budget wise. I can't remember. I think my room in that house was one hundred and seventy five bucks or something. So so the nut was definitely uh, pretty low, and it was. Uh, I don't want to say it was a golden age in 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 Seattle, but maybe it was a golden age in Seattle. I don't know. It definitely wasn't cool yet, right? This, back then, bands would still, like punk bands, would still sort of stop their West Coast tours after, you know, after Portland, just just because I ah, wouldn't want to drive north anymore and, 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 you know, turn around and go back to California. I, I guess that we, I say we, I, I, I mean the, the, uh, you know the 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 the, the sub pop uh, and pre sub pop guys did a lot to change that, right? So so uh, I wish I could take credit for that. Hey, some of those some of my best friends are those guys, but uh, I, I was kind of a, just a little after that. Generation. So who was in that house with you? Ah, uh, geez, uh, I think that probably the funnest iteration was uh, Steve and Dan from Mudhoney. So that's Steve Turner, D uh, Dan Peters, uh, myself, and the. Uh, now noted illustrator and painter Ed Fotheringham. Boy, cycling through that house for periods of a couple or several months were uh, lots of other band guys and gals. Uh, Val, the old drummer for Seven Year Bitch, was there for a little bit. Um, I think she has some of my vinyl, vinyl still. Um, 
We'll have to, if she's listening, yeah, give yeah, them back. Yeah, I think a lot of my vinyl disappeared at that house, uh, and I'm not blaming it all on Val, but... Uh, so how did uh, you find this house? Yeah. Uh, some other musician and painter friends already lived there, and it was just, you know, it was a, it was, it was a four-bedroom rental house, so you would there would be one person kind of in charge of the phone bill, and that person would also sort of fill these rooms. And, and it was, uh, you could still get a house like that there, or Capitol Hill, or Fremont, or, you know, in town, so... so uh, it was while it was a great house. It wasn't like, oh my god, I'm staying here forever because I found a room in a house, which I feel like is kind of the situation now, as far as uh, rents in general and certainly uh, larger common spaces in Seattle. And so you're in this common space with other musicians and other artists. Did that inspire you in any way, or did that have any effect on your creativity and your that's own? A, music? That's a good question. I I, I suppose I, I, I'm sure it didn't hurt to be around to be sort of mixed in with all. You know, we were all kind of in multiple bands at, at, at the time, but um, I would say we were already all sort of friends because we all were in multiple bands all the time already. So, so in that sense, like at, right, right out of high school, I was immediately being a drummer, I, I should say being a drummer that had my own kit immediately made me sort of a commodity in the post high school world. Like that's, that's, you know, if I, if I'd had a vehicle also, that would have been the trifecta. So I, thought, I immediately sort of had no trouble being in as, as many bands as, uh, as, as I liked or, or, or as many groups of uh, musicians to jam with or whatever. I, I hate to use the word jam, but it, but it really was what, what we were doing. It, it, it should be illegal, the word jam. Uh, so where was the first place that you got booked, you got paid to perform music? Great question. Um, that was probably a band called Paisley Sin, which was about four main bands before the presidents. And we were sort of a, a mostly original couple covers, kind of R&B funk type arrangement. Uh, and yeah, they, I joined that. I, I, I might've still been a senior in high school when I joined that band. And, and the reason was that they were already in this sort of bar circuit that was around at the time. So the central tavern a place called the hall of fame on the Ave, uh, 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 maybe the ditto tavern in Belltown was already there. These were all places that were booking, uh, on, on weeknights, they were booking original bands and, 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 uh, not paying guarantees, but definitely I think you got the whole door or maybe the whole door minus 20 bucks for the door guy or something like that. And it wasn't a ton of dough, but it was actual currency exchanging hands at the end of the night, which was uh, 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 novel. So that would have been, for me, 86? Do you, so you don't remember the, the first spot that gave you your chance to get no, paid? No, for... definitely not. I, I, <laughs> as far as, I mean, because I, I definitely, I, look, as, as, a, as a drummer, we're not, we're not the guy's driving the bus as they say you know uh, uh we're not giving the orders we're just we're just showing up when we're supposed to and and uh, uh doing what we're told really kind of describe what it's like to play in seattle you know not yet the big time sure but just playing in the clubs and the places where did you play what did they do for you how did it make you feel yeah. all those things well, okay, so those years, um, uh, in, in my case, I wasn't yet 21, so there was a lot of uh, paperwork. You could, you could, uh, if you were, I think you had to be 18, but there was, there were sign, there were documents you could sign that were like, okay, you can only be in the premises um, um, during the actual set, and and then you had to 
to leave again. Um, I forget what that paperwork was called, but they were very, very serious about it. And there was also, in those particular years, the late 80s, very few all-ages venues because of a particular, uh, th this teen dance ordinance that was uh, the law of the land back then. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but we had a very aggressive uh, city attorney named Mark Sidron who, who just thought that young people getting together and listening to live music was a bad idea, kind of like uh, the Kevin Bacon movie. Um, so that it was really tough to have an all ages venue. Uh, people had to do all those, all, all ages shows had to be done sort of as one offs fly by night, um, in, in sort of, you know, Grange halls and that, that type of thing. So, um, the, the bars we were playing in, like I said, were the, were the, were the, were the, the main ones were the central in Pioneer Square on first Avenue, which would have, uh, original or punk bands on, on, I think, uh, I want to say Monday nights and the Vogue downtown had original music on Wednesday nights. And that, that became important because that was the, the Vogue on Wednesday nights was where a lot of the, of, of the, the grunge uh, sort of future icons got uh, sort of did their most important gigs, like their, their best paying gigs and, and where a lot of, uh, you know, dinosaur juniors and pussy galore and Sonic youth and bands like that would, 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 would come through and play a Wednesday night at the Vogue. Um, tiny little place. Uh, so were you able to make a living on music before you were kind of a big deal? No, absolutely not. No. Um, um, I was the, the, the seven years before the president started, I was, had a full-time band called love battery, which, which had a, a deal with sub pop. We put out four records on sub pop. And the last one was, uh, on, on some polygram subsidiary major label. Um, but there was, it was very much subsistence uh, musicianing. Um, so it was musicianing with a job, with a, a full-time job. Um, uh, the, I guess, you know, the, the rock band model doesn't really, it doesn't work the way a regular professional musician model works in the sense that uh, my friends who were just players, like my friend Vleif, real talented guitar player, he was doing all kinds of stuff. He had a blues band and a Sukus African music band and, and a cover band and a rock band, and he was just playing every night of the week, getting his 40 bucks from, from whoever that was. And that was, that was making a living for him. And that wasn't the way that a band like uh, Love Battery would, would work, though, because you could only really play once or twice a month in town, right? There's no dough in it, so... It's a kind of a different. Uh, the, the, it's the two different uh, ways to approach it. Uh, I don't remember. Like when I was in high school, there were a couple bands that I knew, like the Heats and and the Allies, and Duffy Bishop and the Rhythm Dogs were these bands that I'd heard of that were actual, honest to God, Seattle bands that were like playing every weekend and and making probably, as far as we knew, millions of dollars. But at least we're doing that as their main thing. Um, but that, again, that was not, uh, I don't think it was, I think it was probably half original, half covers, that kind of thing. So then walk me through, what was the process like in Seattle to get discovered? So how did, what did you have to do to become a national, uh, international act? Well, in the president's case, we were, we were lucky because uh, by the time that we started in, in 19, I guess this would have been the end of 92 or, or beginning of 93. Look, we, Seattle was already sort of 
globally known as 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 this place where where all of a sudden you know the Pearl Jam record was out, the Nirvana record was either out or almost out. Um, uh, Soundgarden had been huge for a while, so all the all the major labels were already looking at Seattle. At who was doing what in the clubs every weekend. And we just had it. We kind of organically became a really popular club band uh, really quickly within, within a couple months of, of forming, if you can call it that forming sounds awfully uh, official. We really just started playing open mics and stuff, but super fun music and people, uh, you know, we, we played a Wednesday night at, at Mo and they liked it enough to book us back on a, on a weekend and we were off to the races. Um, so look, that's not the way it usually, that's a lot quicker than it usually happens. We were just kind of, maybe that was the only six month period that that kind of quick journey was possible in this town. Um, I know that within six months of being a band, there were definitely, you'd, you'd look out and they're like, okay, there's the guy from, from Capital and there's the guy from A&M and there's the guy from Polygram and they're all like, you know, they're, they're maybe they care about your music and maybe they don't, but they're there because you're you're selling 300 tickets in Seattle, and and they have been ordered by their bosses to find me the next Pearl Jam or whatever. Uh, um, that 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 is a serious way that that labels. I mean, and they still talk that way. Corporations and 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 uh, of all types talk this way, right? They're like, oh, there's a thing that works. Go find me the next thing that, that knocking off the thing that works. So was there like um, one particular bar or club that you knew you had to play with to get noticed or it just started to happen? No, it just happened. I mean, there were, there were the, the, there were, there were basically three. There was like the, by, by the time the president started, there was basically the crocodile and Mo, which is now Numo's, um, and Squid Row. And we did all three of those. And maybe uh, the Ballard Firehouse also, um, which is long gone. Um, and we did all of those very quickly within, I mean, we knew everyone in, in town, uh, all the right, you know, the, the bookers and, and um, the other bands and stuff to, to kind of put a bill together. Um, did not take long. Um, really, uh, I say those four, but really just the, the if, 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 you were, if you were able to do a Thursday or weekend at the Crocodile and or Numo's, you had arrived. Like, so it was everybody trying to do that. And do you have friends who never got a chance to play there? Uh, I think everyone I know got a chance to play there. I don't think it was that, that tough. I mean, I, not everyone ever had a chance to, you know, headline a Friday night at Mo, but you know, probably a Wednesday or probably, I, geez, I, I, I hard to say. I, I don't remember thinking of it as like a, as a cutthroat or, or, you know, really tight situation in the way that we always sort of heard about like LA being like, you know, the, the strip, you know, oh, so, you know, these guys are all, um, you know, killing each other to get like at the, you know, book to the Roxy or whatever. But so now the music scene in the nineties, you've got so many successful bands. Was there kind of like a fraternity among you? Did you, kind of get advice and guidance from them and, and share it on and so on? Yeah, I well, they're, they're, it's not that big a town. Uh, I, and, you know, every, I, I, I know it sounds cliche, but everyone kind of did know each other just socially and we're all standing in the same uh, kitchens drinking canned beer uh, on, on nights that there weren't shows, you know. I don't remember a ton of like straight up like mentoring happening, but because nobody really knew what was going on. I mean, even, you know, you'd run into, to, uh, okay. I remember clear as a bell, a bunch of like grunge 
buddies seeing the presidents on that Wednesday night at, at Mo. And afterwards, most of them were like, that was fine, but but you can't, you know, Love Battery, your main band is, is you know, is your main band, obviously. And one, one, one person in particular, Kim Thale, <laughs> uh, Soundgarden's Kim Thale was like, you gotta quit love battery, dude. You gotta, you know, like I shouldn't even say this on the, you know, it's like <laughs> he was like going against against the grain on that, but he was like, yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was that was something different. You should, you should pursue that. And it's not like I wanted to quit love battery. I love love battery, but I just that, that was a very, we could all tell it was a very unique thing that was was happening and probably a once in a lifetime thing. So fast forward to today, yeah, and you're seeing a lot of changes in the city that that you've called home for many years. Do you see any changes that affect the likelihood of a future Jason Finn getting the, the ride that you got? Well, uh, the uh, every facet of the music business from from creation to curation to to distribution to the finances has obviously changed three hundred percent since since then. The, the 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 record industry that that we were lucky in simply does not exist anymore. Um, that said, it's never been easier to create and get in, get original music into the universe. But maybe it's never been harder to rise above with, with everybody else's, right? I, 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 I couldn't say for sure. I know that it, it would be very daunting to start from scratch now and be like, okay, well, how do I get noticed? I, I've, I, I know younger people that are doing that. They're like, okay, we've got a record that we like. Um, we want a tour. We just can't. We're having trouble finding an agent. But even if we found an agent, you need to have a draw, or or you can't get booked anywhere. And how do you get a draw? How do you do that? I don't know. Back when we were doing it, you know, you could kind of okay. We're friends with these guys in Portland and these other guys in San Francisco, so we'll go down and play with them in those towns. They'll come up here and play in uh, in Seattle with us. And look, there's there's in terms of just lots of talented creative. People being around in Seattle, yeah, absolutely. Like just like always, I, there have been so many. I mean, if Seattle was a flash in the pan scene, it would have been that. But there have been so many, so many different years where where artists from Seattle have have rocketed all over the place. You know, for going back to, I, I, some people don't count Hendrix because of the whole London thing, but you know, Hendrix to to heart, the Sonics and the Whalers. The the grunge era, Death Cab, uh, uh, Macklemore, you know, it, it, it goes. Not not a lot of towns have this. Uh, even one sort of uh, whatever golden age, and and we've had six. So so we we must be special. I don't know. And as Seattle's growing and changing so fast, is there anything that you'd like to hold on to that you think will be critical to making sure that future music creators can thrive here and and use Seattle as a launching pad? Well, I. Uh, Okay, the, one of the most nuts and boltsy things I can think of is is that uh, dedicated rehearsal space has been completely priced out of of Seattle proper, just like uh, living uh, spaces. Um, that is a problem that could easily be addressed, if not solved completely, by with 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 a minimum sort of uh, prioritization by uh, the powers that be. Um, uh, I don't know if that should be put ahead of actually getting people sleeping indoors probably not but I'm just, I'm just saying if we if we can get that far down the list um, uh, that would help um, there are I'm happy to say 
way more venues to to perform at now, way more all ages opportunities, which is great. The teen dance ordinance was was put put to to rest many many years ago, and and uh, you know the Vera project is just kind of the flagship one, but there there's 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 tons of of uh, way more sort of punk rock off the grid places that are if not actively encouraged definitely tolerated by the 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 powers that be by by the city and stuff so that that's great that's great news um so why why couldn't there be a, another wave of of seattle uh uh acts taken over and so as more money and people move in and the city's changing do you see anything that beyond the rehearsal space do you see anything else that seattle's losing that might have been critical to your success or the success of others uh, so I, I guess I guess my answer is no. I mean I, th- I think the, all the essentials are still in place. There's it's a great place to live, and there's a lot of uh, uh, talented people here. It's it's a big. It, it's still it, it's changed a lot, but it's still main. Every place is changing a lot. It is still kind of in this sweet spot of major media market, but not like Chicago size. So it's got this kind of cool like. Number twelve or fifteen size wise kind of spot, which I think is kind of a sweet spot for creativity in general. Even if there's no longer, say, cheap loft space like there maybe there might still be in Memphis or something, but that ship has sailed. And so, from your experience coming up in the music world, do you have any guidance for the city or for future musicians about making sure Seattle is still on the map? For music, Seattle does more right than they do wrong. I think at this point, I think that it's in general, they they are doing what they can to support arts in general and music in particular. They they certainly see which side of the bread has the butter has 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 come from uh, uh, at at this point. And the municipal government has, starting with uh, during McGinn, had the 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 foresight to to start an actual sort of Seattle Music Commission that that is uh, made up entirely of musicians and producers and and uh, uh, club people and stuff and 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 they you know they get together every month and and talk about stuff and that's that's a good start uh, is everything perfect no there's not enough money for for all this stuff I wish there were more dog parks I wish that there were no homeless people and I wish that um, uh, I could park for free wherever I wanted anytime I wanted but none of that's gonna happen I guess all right what's the future hold for Seattle's music scene oh great question I think that um, one of these bands you're one like a hey Marseille or Maldives or 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 one of these bands that's kind of been bubbling around for a little while um, um, Eric Granderson's band uh, oh uh, Cataldo um, one of these bands that's kind of been simmering around for a little bit I think is gonna just boop make a make a make a make a blip all of a sudden Shelby Earl might be the one but there's a lot of, look there's a lot of people that are like we said earlier you're, you're just you're, you're you're toughing it out and you're just trying to rise above in a super crowded field of because it's not the Seattle scene that you're that you're competing against it's literally the earth like your 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 songs on spotify with the earth and that's how you have to make your mark now it's very daunting i i don't know if i'd do it now i'd um um well sure i'd do it i'm i'm too i'm i, <laughs> I never really had much of a choice i'm just a guy with a 
with a bartending job at a drum kit. So, <laughs> All right. What's the future hold for Jason Finn and the presidents of the United States of America? Well, uh, the presidents have, last year we stopped performing, um, which I'm not going to say is forever, but it is for now. Um, uh, Chris and I, with our younger replacement guitar, guitarist, Andrew, who's only been in the band uh, uh, 11 years or 12, um, uh, you know, we're, we're, it's kind of a younger man's game. And uh, it hurts our backs to tour. So, <laughs> so we're, we're, we're taking time off. We'll, we'll probably do something fun like uh, put out like a vinyl version of, of a couple records just to kind of keep the, the flame alive. And, and who knows? Keep, keep, keep checking back in and we'll, we'll, we'll let everyone know if there's going to be a, a, a show or two in the future. All right. Any concluding thoughts on the music scene and Seattle's growth and change? Uh, yeah, I think that, I think that, uh, people, their default position is that Seattle is getting all screwed up and, and all this change is, is of necessity bad. And while I agree that there are a lot of awfully poorly designed condos being put in more than we need, I don't think that change is in and of itself a bad thing. I think that, there, that things could be a lot worse. Part, part of the sort of cataclysmic element of, of the change in this town is because is, is because of how prosperous we, we are. I mean, we're, we're very fortunate in the way of, of huge, very successful companies that are also not hopefully entirely evil. Amazon, seriously, don't be evil. Please, we're counting on you here. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, look, we, we, it, it could be it could be a lot worse. I think I think we're doing pretty good here. Jason, thank you very much for your time and perspective. I appreciate hearing your voice today. Thanks for having me. I, uh, it's a rare uh, podcasting opportunity. I love it. Thank you. To understand what it was like to be a music lover in Seattle at a time the whole world was watching, join me as I sit down with Daryl Ducharme. I am here with Daryl Ducharme. He is the host of the popular podcast Seattle After Party, which covers his passion, which which is entertainment and the community here in Seattle. He's an entertainer by nature, programmer by day, and an illustrious guest here on Seattle Growth Podcast. Daryl, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. I'm really uh, really excited to be on. I've been listening to your podcast a lot lately because I had you on as a guest on my podcast. So tell me a little bit about yourself. I am a lover of the city of Seattle. And uh, I moved up here for school and I went to the Art Institute of Seattle and during the mid 90s. So the height of the kind of alternative and grunge scene here in Seattle. And I got a degree in audio production. Uh, and actually, at the same time, I was also working at Ticketmaster. So I saw a lot of shows in town, too, because uh, I knew when they were all coming. So I spent all my money on tickets to them. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I lived here. Uh, until about 2000 and then moved away because of work and family for a while and moved back in 2011. And now I'm here. I'm uh, an entertainer with the local uh, CSE Seattle that does the comedy sports matches here in Seattle. And we uh, about three years ago, I started a podcast called the Seattle After Party, which has blossomed into me being able to focus on all the artists and entertainers and other creative people that make Seattle really one of the coolest places to live. 
since the 90s, Seattle has changed quite a bit. For those people who are new to the city, take us back when you're an audio engineer and you're here, living here in the 90s, going to lots of concerts. What was the music scene like? It was kind of, uh, I hate to be cliche and say it was electric, but it was constant. And that's when I when I say it's electric, I mean, it was constant. There was so much energy. Everybody wanted to come into town. Uh, there were people who were musicians who were moving here because it had the energy it had. And so there were all levels of shows from the really local shows, the small bands who really were just getting started, the regional bands who'd been working for a while and really had their act together, but just didn't have the notoriety outside of the area, um, putting on some great shows. And there were so many, so many bars and clubs that played. I mean, Pioneer Square was packed with them. And then just, and then throughout near, uh, near where, what is like South Lake Union area now, there was a ton of different places there as well. And, uh, and it was there was always something to do, all sorts of different things too. There was, there was really straight ahead rock. There was the metal sound that we had. There was, uh, there was lots of rap then too. And um, I, I won't say I heard a lot of country, but that might just be me. But I mean, everybody was not only having all these things, but they were also, they knew each other. It was kind of a tight enough knit community that musicians just knew other musicians. They didn't didn't care too much about genre and so they started to work together and do things and have fun ideas so it was a really creative time and so what was your experience and, and how did you observe that the artists kind of knew each other um, well uh, my experience was one being in an audio production degree and working at Ticketmaster I graduated in 97 and started working at Guitar Center in Seattle downtown Everybody there was a musician. So we really got to know the people who came in and we got to uh, and, of course, knew each other. So you just got to know what they're doing and they were doing different projects. Heck, I even remember uh, that one time Sir Mix-a-Lot was in uh, the store. Very cool guy, by the way. Uh, and he he was talking about how he was going to start doing some work with the presidents of the United States of America. And. Well, I don't know how people think about that now, but I can tell you in the 90s, we were like, what? You and them? That doesn't mix. But I'm like, that's so cool. That's great. Um, so it was a lot of that kind of stuff. Just people coming in. Yeah, we're talking to so-and-so. They've got this kind of band and doing that. But all the way, I mean, even up to a national act like Sir Mix-a-Lot, you know, we're doing stuff here in Seattle. And, and so where would you go to enjoy live music back in the 90s? Um, well, I, I remember the clubs that I remember doing uh, either the the lower known national acts or the or even the more regional acts. There was like the DV8. Um, there was the Showbox. Um, there was the Central in Pioneer Square, which I think just finally shut down like last year or something. Uh, I may be completely wrong because. Uh, I, I haven't been to Pioneer Square much. Uh, <laughs> there was the the off ramp, which I guess now is El Corazon, and uh, and then of course there was the the larger places that National Acts would come into. There's the Moore Theater, which still has a bunch of Moore Theater. Still seems to be a really good, nice, small enough theater to still seats a lot of people. Um, sometimes people would come to uh, the Paramount, and then, of course, the, the huge acts would come to uh, uh, the Key Arena. Or 
if you were uh, really big, because we still had the kingdom for a bit there. <laughs> so sometimes there was stuff at the kingdom. So yeah, uh, but but for the, for the local stuff, those were some of the places that we went. And then there were just bars that had bands. I mean, there was a lot of bars and clubs that had bands um, that I just don't even remember their names. What impact did music have on you personally here in Seattle? It's really kind of how I look at my 20s. Uh, here in Seattle was that's what I was I was part of what was going on here in Seattle I might not have been I mean I I was in a band for a for a short time but I wasn't anywhere near as successful as a lot of other people but I got to be around them I ran sound for bands I uh, actually what uh, I'm recording here in the U district for a while I was the sound guy at the uh, the University Sports Bar and Grill, which was on University Way for a while, and then it went through some other things, uh, and uh, now that whole building is closed, I guess. But once again, just another place that had music, and I was running sound there. So it really was just just part of my life, you know, getting to know these different people, hang out, listen to all types of music, stuff I would never listen to by choice. Um, it was just it was just my life. It, um, and really what I saw myself doing um, was music, 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 music <laughs> um, uh, that that eventually changed, it seems, as I as I grew up. But uh, it's still it's still a big part of who I am. I mean, I still love to listen to music. And are you still going out to experience live music here in Seattle? I went recently to see um, a show at Jazz Alley, which um, has been around since the 90s. In fact, um, it's you can always see if you enjoy jazz music or any in any level, you can always see a good show there. I remember even in the 90s, I've, I've been a fan of jazz music for for a while. But even in the 90s, when I was a poor college student, my mom would come into town and say, hey, uh, I want to take you out to dinner. Where do you want to go? And I was like, Jazz Alley. I didn't know who was playing. I just knew it would be good. And it's still that way. So um, that's definitely a place that I just went last month. Uh, and saw a great show with uh, Victor Wooten that was amazing because uh, he's a, one of the best bass players in the world, and I was a bass player, so that was pretty cool. Being here in the 90s and being here now, when do you think Seattle has been more on the map, so to speak, in the country? Well, when it comes to uh, musically, I would say it was in the 90s for sure, uh, whereas right now I think uh, it's more just on the map as a place that people know about now. I mean, we had we had Microsoft back then, and it, people knew about that and kind of knew it's over in Washington somewhere. Uh, but now we have Amazon here. We have Microsoft. All the major tech companies have something here. And uh, it's and it's well known for uh, being a great place to do business. Uh, and, and there's a lot of smart, talented people here. And I really am of the belief that it's because of the artists and entertainers we have here in Seattle. All that creative energy makes for smart people who are coming up with creative solutions because we think outside the box. We think creatively. We we have this background. We have these. And uh, so that's that's really what I'm always about, keeping that energy going so that we don't become stale. But I think Artistically, we were bigger in the 90s, but now we're well-known. But I, I think that's more just new people come into town, and they're a little timid about making their own mark on the city as well. And I, I think it's everybody's city who comes here, and we all want to play together. And as you look to the future of Seattle's music scene, 
What would you like to see happen so that it could have the same kind of energy that had such an impact on you growing up? One of the things that I think would be the best is just uh, the new people who are coming into town, uh, some of them from other countries with very different musical traditions. I would love them to play music locally and be part of it and get part of the community. And I would love the community to start making something because there's something to the the cauldron of creative energy just getting in together and stirring up until finally something comes out of that. And that's that's what I'd really like to see because, you know, I really like, oh, that's a sound nobody else is doing. Let's let's hear more of that. Any concluding thoughts? I really think that uh, Seattle is a wonderful city that's full of lots of different types of creative people here. And I think it's worth everybody's while to check out, find something. If you've been interested in something, chances are somebody's doing it here locally. And get to be part of that community, I think, is the biggest thing. We're growing so fast, and I think it's it can be scary for people, but I think it's also a great opportunity to meet uh, new people who have the same, like, the same hobbies you do and the same interests as you do. And I think the more of that that happens, the better it is for the city as a whole. Daryl, thank you very much. I appreciate your time and perspective today. All right. Thank you very much. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have a story to share from Seattle's music past? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, or post to the Seattle Growth Podcast Facebook page. I'd love to hear from you. On the next episode of Seattle Growth Podcast, you'll hear Marco Collins, an influential Seattle DJ who record executives from around the world turn to for insight into who would be the next big thing in music. We knew it was big. We saw MTV talking about it. We, we saw what was going on by reading magazines, newspapers, and watching you know stores start to carry grunge wear. Um, but here it just felt small. You'll also hear from singer-songwriter Ben London, who in the time since the 90s has made a big impact on the Seattle music community. Uh, I was lucky enough to make records and tour through most of the 90s as part of the sort of whole grunge thing. Um, like to jokingly say that my band at the time is a footnote of flannel in that we were there, we, we rubbed shoulders, we did all the things that the other bands did except we did not sell millions of records. This is the best season of Seattle Growth Podcast yet. You'll hear from hip-hop artists, folk singers, jazz musicians, rising musical theater stars, and many, many more. You are going to get to know the musicians who call Seattle home, and you'll hear the variety of sounds coming from the Emerald City. You'll get insight into the growing legacy of Seattle music artists and how that legacy will be carried forward into the future. Subscribe to Seattle Growth Podcast and iTunes so you don't miss a single episode. As I conclude this episode, I want to say thanks to Naomi Washira, Dre's, and Portia Shaw, whose voices appeared at the beginning of this episode, and whose full interviews will appear later in this season. I also want to thank the University of Washington's News and Information Office, notably Victor Balta, Peter Kelly, Rebecca Gorley, and Michelle Ma, who have supported this work from the beginning by sharing with the university community. I also want to thank Ed Cromer and Mike Bosey for fantastic work in sharing news of Seattle Growth Podcast on the Foster School of Business blog. I'm Jeff Shulman, and I want to thank you 
for joining me on this journey of Seattle Growth Podcast.